Amen. Well, church, welcome. Merry Christmas. So glad that you are here. Um, welcome to those of us that are tuning in online. Grateful that you are here with us uh, even digitally. So as you're having a seat, if you have a Bible, if you would grab it and open up to John's gospel, we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning as we continue in our Advent series. Um, and this is what we're going to be looking at here this morning is what is the motivation of Christmas? Uh, what is this Christmas season all about? In the mind of God, in the heart of God, what prompted God and what motivated God uh, to give us this reality, to give us Christmas? And in the Bible, we have one of the most familiar passages in all of the scriptures, yet one of the most foundational ones in all of the scriptures. And this scripture, in one powerful sentence, gives us the motivation of God for Christmas. In this verse, we have some of the highest ideas of thought ever penned in the Bible, ever penned uh, ever in the history of writing. In this one verse, we see God, we see sin, we see man, we see Christ, we see death, we see salvation, we see heaven, and we see hell in one sentence. It's an incredible passage that gives us the motivation of Christmas. I'm going to read it. It is very, very familiar, um, but it is very, very profound. And so I want to encourage you this morning to hear it with maybe new ears this morning in this Christmas season. John 3.16, you may have heard of it. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let me read it again. For God so loved the world that he, God, gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16, this all too familiar passage, this all too familiar verse, shows us the motivation of Christmas. It shows the motive of why Jesus was born in a manger, and it also shows us the motivation of Easter. So I'll probably preach it at Easter too, right? It shows us the motivation of the cradle, and it shows us all the way the motivation of the cross. It shows us the motive of God of sending his Son, and what is that? Listen to this. God so loved. God so loved. This idea, this thought, was when this was written down to the original audience, to the context of this chapter that John is writing this, is uh, beyond what anyone had ever heard. Remember, uh, Bible verses are not sort of uh, we tend to sort of extract them out and kind of leave them out on their own, but it is written in a context. It is written uh, not as a random statement, but this is a statement given to a guy named Nicodemus in the context of John chapter 3. Nicodemus was this um, highly trained, highly educated, very, very influential um, Pharisee. He was a religious leader of religious leaders. And so this statement is, is being said by Jesus to this most influential religious man. 
that had climbed the ranks of the religious system in Israel, right? This man followed the law. This man lived his life down to every letter of the law. He obeyed it. His family obeyed it. It was all that he thought of. It was all that he did. He trained his entire life to reach this pinnacle of success, if you will, in this religious system. And Jesus is coming and shattering so much of what he had thought about God. Here's what Nicodemus would have thought when these words hit his ears. Uh, that God saved and was with those who were good. Uh, that God saved and was with those who obeyed the law and who were good like him. That God saved and was with those who were born into the right families and were part of the right nationalities, <coughs> who looked the part, who followed the letters of the law. So this news, as Nicodemus is receiving it, is news that God so loved the world. That would have been a newsflash. God loved the world? Well, I don't know. I thought God just loved us, he would have thought. That God loved the world, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that would have been blasphemy right there to him as well. And listen to this. That whoever a religious leader, leader of the law, one that knew it, one that followed it, just heard that God so loved the world that whoever believed could have eternal life. I want you to consider that word. I know we, I know we uh, read this verse a lot. I know uh, when, when I was, I think in, even before I was even a Christian, uh, kids used to wear it on like little bands, John 3.16, it was like a whole thing, right? Uh, the reason it's so meaningful, the reason it's so powerful is that word right there, whoever. There's so much room in that statement. There's room for me and there's room for you this morning. In that statement, whoever believes. Whoever believes. Whoever believes will indeed be saved, the scriptures tell us. We see right here into the very heart of God, into the very heart of Christmas. God loves the world. God loves the world. Now, uh, the Pharisees, for so long, uh, had filled their hearts with hatred toward the world. They, they created law after law after law. They created this hedge around themselves so that the world could not get in toward them. They pushed the world out. They said the world cannot come in, and so we're creating uh, this law that protects this law that protects this law that protects this law so that there is no way that the world can even come near us. They had a hatred for the world. They wanted to keep those uh, those on the outside, on the outside, and those on the inside, on the inside. And so this idea that God would love the world would have been shocking, shocking news to Nicodemus and to all that would read it later. Um, they justified their hatred for the world and defended it on the basis of this must be how God felt. It is us versus them. 
So quick application for us as Christians here. Hearing the motivation of God for Christmas. Do you have that feeling to the world? Do you have an us versus them feeling? Do you have let's keep those on the outside on the outside and let's protect those on the inside? Because that's not the heart of God through Christmas, through Jesus. Jesus came and was born that whoever believes in him can come to this incredible God. So the Pharisees were the people of God. They were the representatives of God. And that the idea that God would have loved the world would not even been anywhere on their radar, anywhere even in the realm of possibility. Um, the reason God, they would have thought, made salvation available is because it was, you were born to the right families. You did the right things. You followed the law. But this idea that God would love the world and would save whoever would believe in this one son that had come was shocking, a shocking statement. But that's the motivation of Christmas is the love of God. So we read of the object of God's love here in John 3.16 is the world. The object of God's love is the world, and you and I are included in that. So what does that mean, the world? So is is God kind of like a hippie? Is it just sort of like, is he super crunchy and granola, and he loves the trees and the ocean, and he just, uh, is is he just for uh, uh, nature? Is that what what he's talking about here? No. What he's talking about here in the original uh, language, that word world would actually uh, mean cosmos. And it actually has a moral connotation to the word. So there is a moral attribute in this word cosmos of the world. And so when God says he loves the world, it means that God's heart is for and he is pursuing those in this fallen and rebellious world that we live in, that we operate in. That God loves those in a moral way. His heart is for those in this world who are hopelessly lost in their sin without him. That God loves a people that rejected him even. That God loves a people that don't even pray to him, that don't even want to know him. And God is doing something about it. God is initiating a rescue plan. God is doing that which we cannot do on our own. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us. Listen to this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, while we were in our sin, while we were in our rebellion, while we didn't want anything to do with God, while we rejected God wholeheartedly, he still died for us. He came and he lived and then he died for us. So what does this tell us? It tells us that nothing in God prompted him to save you. Another way of thinking about it is nothing you have done, none of your best efforts, did God look down and and kind of look at you and say, wow, that's impressive. I'm gonna go get that one. That's not how it happened. 
God looks down at us broken and fallen and sinful, not even wanting him, not even acknowledging him, and said, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to go and get them because they're mine. Um, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, as I think about this, this idea that God so loved us even in our rebellion that he gave us the greatest gift, the gift of gifts, his very son, the only thing that can really, I can even comprehend this level of love and devotion and affection is the love that we have uh, for our children as parents, right? Um, it, it just is the only thing that really can come to mind when I think about it. Because when you think about our children, from the minute they're born, they cost us very dearly, right? Uh, there's pain in childbirth for mom. Uh, they suck your bank account dry from the minute they're born until the minute they leave the house or sometimes many, many years after that, right? You are constantly exhausted, um, you are constantly giving, you're changing diapers, they're dirty, they're filthy, they eat you out of house and home, and there's all sorts of stresses, there's all sorts of things uh, that cause you to just your hair to go gray, my beard is going gray, there's all sorts of things that happen with our children, right? They don't listen to you oftentimes, they test your nerves, and you're cleaning up for them for what seems like 25 to 30 years, constantly. Parenting is this mega commitment, and it spans decades and decades and decades. And on paper, it makes no sense why we feel so deeply for them, right? Yet, in a minute, we'd lay our lives down for them. In a second, we, we, it's, it's not even an option, it's not even a choice, we love them. This is what I think this kind of gets at that idea. We love them and we would give our lives for them even when they've done nothing for us. Our love for them is not conditional on what they've done or accomplished. We don't hold out on them. Um, that's the kind of love that God has for us. But even in that, that's, that, that, that even is a weak analogy. I'll just admit that. The scriptures even tell us that. So as much as we feel that sort of ringing true, if you're a parent in here, you're like, yes, I, I, I do understand that. Uh, Matthew chapter seven uh, tells us that that is not even, that pales in comparison to the love that God has for us. Listen to what Jesus says. If you then who are evil, he's talking to all of us, right? Uh, know how to give good gifts to your children. He's saying, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask. So our even love, that heart cry for our kids is a, is, is a far, far, far distant comparison to the love of God the Father, Father that he has for you and I. That's incredible. That's an amazing thought, that it goes that far, that it goes to that length, that it goes to that depth that, it, that God, God would feel that deeply about you and about me as his children. So that kind of fluffy uh, Bible belt, God loves you talk that is sort of marginalized and meaningless that gets said a lot about on the CMA Country Music Awards, it's so much more than lip service. 
it's like, it's so much greater. It's so much more uh, than that. Um, and he loves us so much, the, the text tells us, as we begin to just pick this apart, he, his love motivated him to action. Um, he loves us so much, so much to the extent that he gave us something, and that's Christmas. Uh, what did he give us? Some translations say, then I like this word, his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, sons of God traditionally, uh, when, we, when we look at the scriptures, is used to describe angels most commonly when you kind of take a sweep of the Bible. So he's like, well, is, he is Jesus an angel? No, angels are created sons. God creates them. Christians, you and I, the Bible describes us as adopted sons. The Apostle Paul uses that language. The nation of Israel is a chosen son by nationality, right? In the Old Testament, the Jews. You and I are adopted. These are all different ways. We are not begotten sons. And so John 3.16 uses this idea. Begotten means of the same essence, of the same stuff as the Father, so Jesus has this unique relationship with God the Father that none of us have. Even though that we are sons and daughters through belief in this only begotten son, begotten means he's of the same stuff. They are the same. Christ is begotten of the Father. He is uh, the only one that has this unique relationship. So what does this mean? If they are of the same essence, it means that the Father is eternal, so the Son is eternal. The Father is divine, the Son is divine. The Father is unchangeable, the Son is unchangeable. The Father is everlasting, the Son is everlasting. The Father is all present at all places, at all times. He's all knowing, he's all good, and so therefore so is this Son this royal son, this one that he is sending to us at Christmas. Jesus says it this way later in John 14, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's how Jesus himself describes his relationship with the Father. They are, they are of the same essence. The Father gave this one and only son to incarnate into humanity, to take on flesh, to dwell among us, to be ultimately punished for the sins of the world, you and I, for our sins, so that God could pour out his love on us through this one. Um, when it says that he loved him so that he gave him, uh, again, in this context, we don't have time to really get into all of this, but if you go back to verse 14 in this interaction with Nicodemus, he's saying in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so that anyone that looked upon that serpent would be saved, that Moses did that to save his people, God, in the same way, would bring his son to this earth and lift him up on a cross that whoever believes and takes by faith this one would be saved just like that. So he's making the connection so that Nicodemus, this Jew, would understand why this son came, what this son meant, and he would be lifted up 
just like Moses lifted up that one that whoever looked on that by belief and faith would, be, would, would have life, this one that would be lifted up on the cross would have life. John 15 later says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The motivation of Christmas is love. The motivation of Easter is love. From the cradle to the cross, love motivates the heart of God for you and I. Now, a common question when we begin to think about all this, who is responsible for all of this? Well, it's the Romans, right? When we look at the death of Jesus, the Romans drove the nails. Well, no, it's, it's the Jews. The Jews drove the Romans to that, that false trial. John clears it all up for us here. He tells us that God drove this whole situation. God knew exactly what he was doing. God did it. God knew exactly how he would bring you and I back to him. And his motivation was love, though at times we cannot understand it. The birth and the death of Jesus was according to the sovereign providence of God to provide a basis for humanity to come back to him. Isaiah 53 tells us that God was delighted to bruise him, his son. Peter tells us that Jesus was delivered up, was given to, was presented and given to be put to death on a cross by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. It was not a surprise. God so loved this warring planet that was against him that he gave his son to die upon a cross, his only begotten son, and he gave us all that he could give. He could not give us anything more. That whoever, so sufficient was Christmas and Easter, his death, his life, his burial, and his resurrection, so sufficient was this that the wrath of God was satisfied for all of us, for those that would believe in this one. No matter how bad, no matter how messed up that you think you are, we could have our sins washed away by the asking through belief and faith. Any human now, because of Christmas, because of Easter, can stand before God on the basis of this one that came to us, on his life, on his account, on his death, on his burial, on his resurrection. Under the blood of Jesus, under the blood of that cross, and the victory of the resurrection, we all stand on equal ground now. It does not matter if you are a lifelong missionary that spent your life in service to the proclamation of the good news of the gospel in very, very hard places, or if you are the murderous thief on the cross at your dying breath, receive him as Lord, and he says, today I'll see you in paradise. We're all on equal footing because of Jesus. Now, how does this happen? Belief. By believing. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whomever believes... Whoever believes, not whoever does a lot of great, cool stuff, whoever gets it right, um, whoever does the most, belief. And then verse 16 goes on to tell us the result of this incredible belief. Whoever believes in him should not perish. Now, this is not talking about physical death. Uh, this idea of perishing um, 
Revelation calls a second death, perish in the New Testament, often refers to eternal ruin or hell. It's this soul perishing. So whoever believes and trusts in this one Jesus escapes that, escapes hell, and gets heaven solely based on Jesus, on this royal son that came many, many, many Christmases ago. So by believing, we bypass that which we deserve, and Jesus gives us glory. Isn't that amazing? He's all, and he's motivated by love. Now, when I think of some of the most delightful things to me, here's a few things that just came to mind. The list is much longer than this, but things that bring delight, things that bring joy, things that are just that you long for, things that you've experienced that are incredible. Um, I remember uh, waking up as a young boy on a Saturday morning and the world is out in front of you. You can go explore, build forts in the woods. You've got friends, you have your bicycle, you have freedom and you're just no school. There's no time, you just be home before it gets dark kind of thing. That was just delight, Saturday morning as a young boy, right? Delight, laughter, they await you. I think of Christmas mornings. Delight awaits you, whether you're a child or whether you're a parent. You get delight on both sides of Christmas morning, seeing good gifts and good family and food surrounding you. I think of my wedding day when the doors flung open of that church and delight stood in front of me and walked down the aisle. I think of my four children being born. Delight, joy, and when I think of heaven, I'm reminded that all of those things that I know as delight correspond to the creator. He orchestrated them. He gave them to me. He is in charge of them. And he, uh, he created them for me. And then when I think of John 3.16, when I think of the motivation of Christmas, when I think of what I deserve, that I deserved death, but he gave me instead delight everlasting in him. And now someday all of these things are gonna come together and in glory I will see, as the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians, inexpressible things that man is not permitted to speak about. One day in glory in heaven, all of these things that we count as delight, all of the things that await us in glory because of this royal son that come, that are delight. Paul says, it's, I, just, it's, I can't even express it. There's just words, cannot even do it justice. I'm not even permitted to speak about the delight that we will find in finally seeing face to face our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is not something you get. Eternal life is something you have. John 3.16 tells us. It's, you're not waiting around for it. In Jesus now, you have it. You see that word? 
This means God imputes to you now because of this son, because of Christmas, the righteousness of Christ. He gives you now the Holy Spirit. He places in you because of Christ. You have a new heart. You have a new covenant. You have this love of God. You can obey him now because we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into his marvelous light. And the scriptures describe us as getting brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter until we die and see him one day in glory. That's the story we're wrapped up in. God so loved this disobedient planet that he gave his son, born as a man, to die. Christmas and Easter, that anyone who puts their belief in him will escape the sting of death and have as their assurance and security life everlasting. That is our incredible hope this Christmas. This Christmas, And all of his motivation was that of love. So this Christmas, church, know that the baby that lay in that manger, that royal son would one day go to the cross to pay for our sins, that he made you, that he cares for you, that he loves you, his motive toward you is love, and he wants you with him forever and ever and ever in glory. Would you come to him this Christmas season? Would you acknowledge him by belief and faith? And when you do, he does not see you as you are. He sees you as covered by the love of his only begotten son. And he comes to you with this greatest news, good news of great joy that he has come in your stead. God loves you so much that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have life everlasting. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this Christmas for that great reminder that your motivation to love us and to save us and to rescue us and to have us as sons and daughters is that of love. God, that you love this fallen and rebellious world, that you entered into this fallen and rebellious world to save and rescue that which was yours and to give us life, and to give us life everlasting. God, thank you that where we deserved death, God, you have replaced it and given to us delight. God, I pray for anyone here that hasn't tasted of that delight. Lord, remind them right now in this place that it is not of their efforts, it is not of their good work, and Lord, may they bend a knee to the work of the Son that came in their stead. And Lord, I pray that you would produce in them faith and belief, and they would taste the delight of our Lord through the Son, Jesus Christ, this Christmas. We love you and praise you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together, church.